You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey folks, it's me, Pete. Before we get started with our episode today, I want to bug you with some info about our May class. Now, I know you've been hearing a lot about our classes, but bear with me because this class is going to be the best yet because I'm the one teaching it. It's called The History of Biblical Interpretation, and it's happening live on May 31st from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And it's a one-night class surveying the seven stages of interpretation from Second Temple Judaism to post-modernity which I am so excited to teach about. So it's pay what you can until the class ends, and then it costs $25 to download. And if you want to access this class and future classes, yes, past and future, you can get that for 12 bucks a month through our community, the Society of Normal People. And for more information and to sign up for the class, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash interpretation. Hey, folks. So we're about halfway through 2023. And you know what that means, that we start getting anxious and overthinking not just the rest of 2023, but the rest of our lives, years to come. Amen. And one of the things that we really appreciate is when people are able to support us through monthly giving. And some people maybe not even know that that's something that we offer. We do. We love that, actually. So so this week, here's what we're doing. We're doing a little friendly competition to see who is the most beloved podcast host. And who is that? Is it you, Jared? Is it me or is it Marmalade? There's a lot of confidence with our team to think that out of all the podcast hosts, there's only three options. That's I know, pretty good. I know. That's pretty good. That's good. But one of them is marmalade. One, yeah, tr- true. There's a cat in the mix. So yeah. I don't know what that says. <laughs> okay. So anyone who becomes a monthly supporter this week will get to pick a team. Team Jared, Team Pete, or Team Marmalade. So you tell us whose team you're on by going to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. Now, for those of you who are already a part of our monthly supporter group, thank you so much for all you do to help us accomplish our mission, bringing the best in biblical and faith scholarship to everyday people. Now, Jared, who's going to win this competition? Do you have an I opinion? don't know what the criteria is. What, what do we mean by best? If we mean... Well, that's... I mean, you're getting too philosophical. Ending, ending I just, every episode with excellent, <laughs> then that's going to be me. Yeah, that's not I'll my win. criteria at all. And I don't think anybody who listens, that's their criteria. So my concern is if that I if, think clearly me. Which one of us has been on Good Morning America? Um, me. So that's... I mean, that's... Yeah, the but, problem I have, though, is I have to face marmalade every day. That's true. And she sometimes... So you may throw it? She's a little bit pissy saying? sometimes, and she's on me, and she starts clawing. So I'm... I, for my sake, it needs to be marmalade just for my quality of life at home. That's good. I mean, are you okay with to that? To be fair, yeah, because when you say, and it's who, up to the voters, who's it's not up to been us. on Good Morning America. You, you were on it in the afternoon, which is still confusing to me. How are you on Good Morning it, America in the afternoon? Because they have an afternoon slot, Jared. Don't you watch that every day? I no, I know because you're. I working. did watch yours though. I know. I like, did watch like it a when week you were later. On. Okay, um, so I don't know who will win. I guess that's the whole point of this. We'll find out. That's, we'll find out. But what I hope they it's don't normally. know is whoever loses gets fired. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what this really I, is about. I, I didn't know that either. <laughs> yeah, folks, we have to we have to cut some costs here. So you can play that. <laughs> you too can play an active role in deciding who you want fired. How's that? All right. Well. A, I don't think my chances real, are very uh, good. That's actually, a really optimistic way of, of yeah. leaving. Anyway, so, so help us. Anyway, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. Thank you so much. On today's episode, we're talking about dangerous sisters in the Hebrew Bible with Amy Kalmanowski. And Amy is both dean and professor at Jewish 
Theological Seminary. She's the author of several books, including The Dangerous Sisters of the Hebrew Bible, which of course is our focus for the conversation today. And we're really excited to learn from her about it. It's a fantastic episode. Do a deep dive on many different topics in many different areas. All right, let's get into it. The women in the Bible, and this is true for the sisters, may be dangerous destabilizers, but they are significant figures. They're powerful figures. So I think that the Bible has a very complex relationship to its women. They see them as dangerous, and they also see them as powerful. And I think that's just something to really recognize, actually. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and She said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. All right, Amy, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, absolutely. Well, let's just start with here. We're going to talk about, you know, sisters and sisterhood in the Hebrew Bible. What brought you to focus on this in your academic work? You know, I actually, everything that I have ever studied actually has been somehow related to my life. You know, I find that the things that I'm interested in very much changes over time as my life changes. So my interest in sisters actually in some ways grew from the fact that I come from a family where I have two brothers, which actually obviously makes me a sister. But I desperately growing up wanted to actually have my own sister. And I was the youngest of three. And I actually have very clear memories of begging my parents, which, believe me, they were not interested in responding to this, uh, that please give me a sister. (laughs) So I always, I always, you know, sort of wanted one desperately growing up. I've always been somebody who uh, has very close connections with friends, with other women, which is kind of a sisterhood. And then the other thing that drew me to the topic ultimately is I have actually four children. I have two boys and two girls. So I have watched my girls form a sisterhood with each other. And I have watched each of my girls be a sister to their brothers. Um, And this has just been something I've loved watching, but also something that I have found very, very interesting. So my interest really does come from my own family and my own life. I love that. I love the connection to the Mm -hmm. personal story. Let's talk about the Bible and sisters and sisterhood. So if you could give us a a quick kind of 30,000 foot view, orient us here. You talk about three categories of sisters, sister pairs, incestuous sisters, sisterhoods, and also these two paradigms of ideal and dangerous. So can you kind of give us a backdrop here? 
Well, first, I would like to say, like, one of the things that I'm always interested in is thinking about whether there is a typical narrative that the Bible says about any kind of character. So I think when we think of the Bible and, you know, part of what I try to do in this book is to kind of challenge this, right? When we think of the Bible, we think of fathers and sons and the tension between them. We think of brothers and the tension between them. And we feel like these are sort of the baseline stories in the Bible. So one of the things that I'm interested in is asking this question of, is there a kind of overarching narrative about sisters? And part of what I discovered is I think that there is an overarching narrative. And at the same time, I think that you can divide sisters into various different categories, all that kind of fit into that narrative, but in a way are sort of different aspects of it. So I look at paired sisters and the dynamic that happens when you have, you know, sisters in stories that are related to each other. I look at stories that have sort of independent sisters, sisters of brothers. And, you know, I noticed actually, and this is something I'm happy to talk more about, is that a number of those stories touch on the theme and the motif of incest, which is really quite interesting. And then I also look at what I call sisterhoods, which are, you know, I sort of divide my study between a relationship between women that's biological, you can say there are sort of blood sisters, and a relationship between women that's not biological, that one could say is actually more, could be friends, people that are not obviously related to each other. And also, one could say not just between two women that form a sisterhood, but even broader thinking about groups of women. And so I look at these three different types of sister stories in the Bible and say sort of what's unique about them? about each of these types, but at the same time, is there an overarching commonality that brings all of these stories together to say that there is, in fact, a sister story, a kind of typical sister narrative that you find in the Bible? Yeah, I I can't wait to get into some of those stories specifically. Before we get into some of those details, to help orient all of us to this general study, how would you summarize the narrative role that sisters play in the Hebrew Bible. The brothers get a lot of press. They get a lot of airtime. The sisters don't as much, but they're there. But so what role do they play, narrative role do they play in the Hebrew Bible? I mean, I think this is very interesting. First of all, there's just a point of comparison. So you kind of think about what brothers, you know, what the role brothers play. And I would say when you think about brothers, you think about rivalry and you think about securing the inheritance. Right. That's kind of the typical concerns of the brother story. Sisters, you have a different story. And I always say this kind of fundamentally about understanding kind of the role that women play in the Bible and the question of the status women might have had in ancient Israel's culture. You know, one of the most important things is that women could not inherit. Right. They couldn't inherit property with rare, rare exception, actually. But women could not inherit property. So their story is not about securing the inheritance, right? So this is true, you know, you could say broadly about women, but sisters in particular, it's not directly about securing the inheritance. Their story, what I suggest, is really about the stability of their households and both the household that they're born into and the household that they potentially are going to enter. But their stories is really about security, so I, I would say that is actually the common thread, I would, you know, between all the sister stories. The other thing I would say, which is really kind of quite interesting, 
in a certain way, one of the things that I think differentiates brothers and sisters and the narratives told about them is, as we I said a moment ago, brothers are certainly known for their rivalry between each other and fighting each other. And sisters, I mean, we can talk about some of the sisters more specifically, and certainly probably the most famous sisterhood uh, sisters in the Bible are Rachel and Leah, and they certainly have a rivalry with each other. That is part of their story. But one of the things that I discovered in my work is that's not the only, that's not what their story is totally about. Their story is about other things as well. And not only do they have rivalry, but they also have solidarity. They have the opportunity to come together in their narratives. So it, in some ways, it's kind of interesting to think that I would argue sister stories have more variation than brother stories that are much more focused on the inheritance and which brother's going to get it. Sisters, their story is about the security of their households, the household they come from, the household they're entering, but they are actually able to be rivals with each other. They're also able to be partners with each other in a way that brothers can't. Mm -hmm. So in a way, then, sisters are allowed, in some ways, because they fly under the radar, to have more of a dynamism and a dynamic space. I actually, I want to say one thing about that, because I mean, just to be very specific, which I think is really kind of interesting. I mean, we all know that in some ways you want to be the eldest son in ancient culture. I mean, you actually not just so ancient. I mean, we know that this continues even to this day, you know, that you have a place of privilege by being the eldest son. And what the Bible effectively does is overturn that privilege, right? So you have many stories about brothers where the younger son usurps the older son. And that's quite interesting, but it matters who's the elder and who's the younger, because it matters, you know, to the narratives in the Bible with the sisters, because they're not going to inherit. It doesn't actually matter who's older and who's younger. That isn't what differentiates them. So, in fact, the Rachel and Leah story, which is so interesting, you know, you have Leah's elder and Rachel is younger, but to some extent, it doesn't matter who marries, like who is going to marry Jacob? It doesn't matter if it's Rachel. It doesn't matter if it's Leah. It doesn't matter if it's the elder or the younger. So it does give sisters more flexibility in their stories, which I think is quite interesting. More complexity is what I would argue. Right. That kind of brings into this idea of ideal narratives and dangerous. Can you say more about that? Because I think that's also a helpful way to think about these paradigms of how they're presented in the narrative. So, as I said, I think sisters are about stability of the household. And mostly, I mean, you just if you think about it, sisters, if they're lucky, become wives and then they become mothers and their stories grow beyond being sisters. And I would argue that most sister stories have a focus on their natal households, the households that they're born into. And so it's a question of the ideal sister, in my argument, would be the sister that strengthens her natal household, doesn't threaten the stability of that household. One could say even enriches that household, supports that household. That's the ideal sister. The dangerous sister is obviously the opposite of that and introduces insecurity into the household or introduces threat into the household and is what I would argue, you know, I mean, dangerous is a great term. It's obviously not, you know, I'm, I'm using it without precision necessarily. I think it's, you know, it captures a lot of the spirit, but you could say that, you know, instead of dangerous, you could say destabilizer, 
right? That the sister somehow destabilizes, threatens the natal household. And that's what makes her dangerous. So there's some stories, again, the stories orbit around the idea of stability of the household. The ideal are more and more stabilizing the household and the dangerous are more and more destabilizing yeah, I can give you, I mean, the ideal sisters, in some ways, they exist. And I would say the best example of that, I mean, I could give you two really, you know, straightforward examples. One is Miriam, which is Moses's sister. Miriam is actually such an interesting character. And one of the things that makes her really, really interesting is she never actually progresses beyond being a sister. She remains a sister. In other words, according to the Bible, she does not marry. Later interpretation of her, like she doesn't become a wife and she certainly doesn't become a mother. Rabbinic interpretation actually does marry her off. So it's interesting that they're sort of uncomfortable. But in the Bible itself, every time you meet Miriam, she's actually seen as being a sister. But what's, you know, I think the best portrait of an ideal sister is the first time you meet her. And there in, and this is in the book of Exodus, in chapter two of Exodus, you have Miriam essentially protecting her brother Moses, right, as he's floating down the river. So in that moment, you really see that she is actually protecting her brother, and she actually not only protects his life and makes sure he stays safe, but then also makes sure when Pharaoh's daughter discovers Moses, that Miriam is the one that actually connects Moses back to his own mother so she can nurse him. So she is, you know, very much of a, you know, she stabilizes, strengthens, protects her natal household. The other example I would say actually is of an ideal sister is actually the character, one of my most favorite characters in all of the Bible, most, most interesting character as a female figure. And she is somebody who does become a wife and, and does become a mother. But the first time you meet her is as a sister, and that's Rebecca. And you meet her as a sister in Genesis chapter 24. And she's actually, this is the, you know, it's the story that tells about how it's the process of her betrothal to Isaac. But she actually, in that narrative, functions as a sister. And her brother negotiates the marriage on her behalf. And it's a good deal. It's a good, you know, it's a good marriage negotiation. And her natal household is enriched through her marriage. So she is, when you first meet her, a sister, and I would say is an ideal sister. The thing that I think is kind of interesting is the Bible does have these ideal sisters, but part of my argument is that most of the sisters you meet are dangerous, and even the ideal sisters kind of become dangerous, which is sort of interesting. That certainly is what happens to Miriam, who later in her story challenges the authority of her brothers. And one could say is essentially at that point, her story is finished and she dies in a kind of shame at the end of her narrative. So I think there's something interesting about there are ideal sisters, but in some ways the Bible's more interested in the dangerous ones. And in some ways, the ideal sisters become dangerous throughout their narrative. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. 
You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction (laughs) level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Let me ask, this is really intriguing because, you know, we're talking about dangerous or destabilizing forces of these sisters. In in your opinion, is that intentional on the part of the biblical writers? Are they trying to present something that's destabilizing? And is that a positive evaluation of the sisters or is something else going on entirely? These are great, great questions. First of all, you know, obviously, I don't know. And I'm always suspicious, you know, intention of the writer. Right? That, you know, yeah, I, I, can, <laughs> I can never say. That said, you know, I actually do feel that one of the things that makes the Bible magnificent, both in its artistry and in its meaning, actually, is in fact that it is unbelievably well-crafted, intentional in its crafting. I also do believe that the Bible has a particular ideology that it is, for want of a better word, pushing, right? It is intentional. And so part of what I try to do in my own work, and it's not just in the sister story, but in other things I've written, when I'm asking, is there a kind of typical narrative around sisters, you know, or when I think about, is there a way that women function broadly in the Bible? What I'm really trying to say is, is there an ideology beneath that? Is there an intentionality? And 
I think it is. I think there is. You know, I don't think they're out to get sisters in a certain way, but I think that they're, and I, you know, obviously the Bible is an incredibly complicated text. There is no one author, right? So that also makes it, you know, very difficult to talk about the intention of it. But I do think that there is a consistency in way these women appear in general, and certainly sisters appear. And I think they are used actually intentionally in a particular way. And one of the things that I say, I feel like it seems that there is an anxiety, I would say, that sisters induce. And we can talk about why that is the case, particularly for sisters. I think, you know, there is certainly anxiety and I think there's particular reason. But I think that many women, right, you know, that you meet in the Bible kind of introduce anxiety, you know, into the narrative. And they in some ways are all destabilizers in many ways. That said, I think that they may be dangerous figures. They may reflect patriarchal values from the Bible and from the culture that produces the Bible and the authors that produce the Bible. All of that may be true. That said, the women in the Bible, and this is true for the sisters, may be dangerous destabilizers, but they are significant figures. They're powerful figures. So I think that the Bible has a very complex relationship to its women. They see them as dangerous and they also see them as powerful. And I think that's just something to really recognize, actually. Maybe then, yeah, can we just go further with that? Because you mentioned why this anxiety is produced. Is it connected to that powerfulness that is the reason for the anxiety? Or is there more to it? You know, maybe those kinds of arguments, I think, in some ways are chicken and the egg. And I also don't want to make a kind of essentialist argument that women are powerful and have a certain... I mean, I could make that argument, and I'm happy to hear that argument. Um, It's not the argument that I would make and sort of are inherently powerful and therefore men have, you know, sort of recognize that and see that, perceive that as some kind of threat, and it doesn't do some kind of anxiety. I'm not saying that's not the case. That may be the case. But I think really on a kind of basic, you know, much more kind of hooked into the way people live, I think that, and especially in an ancient culture, I think it's really the fear, you know, that the women of the household, the sisters, the daughters in general, are going to marry out. And by bringing in husbands into the family, they are potentially bringing in rival patriarchs, and that creates anxiety in the household. So who the sister is going to marry is a real question, right? Who the daughter is going to marry. One of the things that is kind of interesting about sisters in particular in many ways, much of what I say about sisters, maybe you could say also about daughters. I didn't focus. I think there's more to be said about sisters, but you could say similarly, there's similar anxieties. They function similar ways because you're going to have to marry your daughters. You're going to marry your sisters. They're going to leave their natal households, their families, and go into their husband's households. And they're going to introduce these rival patriarchs. The one thing that is particularly interesting about sisters in this regard is there's some research that suggests that brothers, even more than fathers, had a particular role in the matchmaking. So that, you know, that's partly why I think the anxiety of who your sister is going to marry is, you know, so evident in the Bible. It may reflect the fact the brothers were very much as it is with Rebecca, right? It's her brother Laban that actually negotiates her marriage, not her father, 
who is in fact mentioned. So I think that there's something about the anxiety of these sisters that are going to leave their homes, leave their families and marry out and then kind of link their families to what might be threatening rival patriarchs. Yeah. Well, listen, let's get into some specifics now with some of these stories. We mentioned before these three categories of sister pairs, incestuous sisters and sisterhoods. And we've touched already a little bit on Rachel and Leah, but let's keep going with that. But I, maybe we can also get to like Lot's daughters. I'm assuming that's an incestuous sister story. Yes. Sort of. Okay, good. Yes. (laughs) I figured that one out all by myself, Amy. Right. So they fit the category. And I mean, it's at the end of the story, right? They become incestuous sisters. um, And it's really quite interesting. So yeah, in the first half of the book, I have these sister pairs. And one of the things that by sort of lifting up these pairs of sisters, you see commonalities in the story, right? Like you actually, I mean, it's interesting that you have Rachel and Leah. Lot has two daughters. Um, You have Michal and Meirav who are Saul's daughters. And then you have what I, you know, sort of the sister pair that's kind of more metaphorical and a little bit different than the other things because it's really not narrative, it's more poetry. And that is the fact that Israel and Judah in the prophets are also presented as sisters. So it's just interesting that you have four sets of sister pairs and, you know, sort of looking at them in comparison with each other and seeing similarities and seeing differences. So Rachel and Leah in some ways is, you know, the most familiar story. And it's also, there's actually the most material. It's the longest narrative. It's actually several chapters long. In some ways, I think of it as the paradigmatic sister story because there's so much material to it. The story of Lot's daughters, which is kind of interesting. I said a moment ago that in some ways, daughters and sisters have similar stories. And so isn't it interesting? We don't actually think of, I mean, they are not named. So that itself is interesting. So we can't really talk about them, but they are mostly referred to as daughters. But at the end of the story, this is actually told in Genesis chapter 19, they have escaped Sodom and Gomorrah with their father. In their minds, the world has been destroyed and they are the last, at least it's what the Bible says, humans on earth. And they want to ensure humans that continue to exist and ensure their father continues to exist. So they get him drunk and have sex with him. And each of them gives birth to a child and their children actually go on to, they are the ancestors of other nations, the Moabites and the Ammonites, who actually, by the way, are Israel's enemies, uh, which is really quite interesting. So their story ends, right? They are incestuous sisters in that they seduce their father and they are a perfect example, I would say, of <laughs> sisters that destabilize their natal household. And I argue in the book, Lot, as a character, kind of needs to be gotten rid of because he is, at the moment that his story gets told, one could say the likely heir to Abraham because Abraham at this point doesn't have any children. Right. And so remember, the father and the brother narrative is all about heirs and inheritance. So my argument is that the Bible tries to get rid of and actually effectively does get rid of Lot through this incestuous act and not only gets rid of Lot from the story. And it's that's where actually 
Isaac is born. So the story progresses through Isaac, obviously, um, and Lot is no longer part of the story. But interestingly enough, the sons born from this illicit union become Israel's enemies and enemies that you are not actually supposed to ever marry. So they are sort of completely taken out of the narrative. And my argument is that it's the sisters that do that. So they destabilize their household. They're dangerous in that way. And yet you see that the Bible uses them, right? That they're significant in order to allow the Bible's narrative to go forward. You mentioned the sisters and then the incestuous sisters. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more just about the sisterhoods? Because again, immediately comes to mind Ruth and Naomi. And how do they fit into this framework? I mean, Ruth and Naomi is just in some ways the most interesting. The book of Ruth is the most interesting book in the whole Bible. I think just because how unique it really is. It's such a female-centric book and genuinely so. And that's where, I mean, this question of intent the author's intention. I don't know, right? I wouldn't make that kind of argument, but it is so clearly a story about women. So with the book of Ruth, it's sort of an interesting thing because I look at that as a sisterhood. And by that, my argument is that sisterhoods are not biological relationships. It's interpersonal relationship created among women. And, you know, we have throughout the Bible groups of women and they're called achot. I mean, they're called sisters, you know, and these sisterhoods you meet and they're groups of women. And you actually find them also in the book of Ruth. There's like this group of this female chorus, one could say, that you find in the book of Ruth. You also find it in the Song of Songs. I also write about that. But you're, what makes Ruth and Naomi's relationship so interesting is part of what I think is going on is that they begin their relationship in this kind of more hierarchical form of a kind of mother-daughter, more precisely mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship. And that's a very hierarchical relationship. A parent-child relationship is much more hierarchical than a sibling relationship, which I would argue is more horizontal. So they begin, Ruth and Naomi begin their relationship as a kind of mother-daughter, mother-in-law-daughter hierarchical relationship. But in the course of their narrative, they become more of a horizontal relationship. And I would argue that the relationship becomes more like sisters to each other. There are plenty of people that argue just, and you know, one of the things I love about the Bible, you can see I love it a lot, is that there are many, many ways you can read any story. There's no one precise way to read, and that's the fun of it. So you can, there are plenty of scholars that actually like to look at Ruth and Naomi as being more of a marital relationship between the two of them. And that's interesting and also a more horizontal relationship than I would say parent-child. But my read of the book is that they actually become more like sisters and that they function, you know, the book brings into focus Leverite marriage, which is a form of marriage that happens if one brother dies, the other brother marries the widow so that they can continue the line. So it's a form of marriage that kind of focuses on brothers. And it's really about one brother kind of replacing or assume the identity of another brother. And my argument in this chapter is that Ruth and Naomi are sort of the parallel to that, sisters, and that they really, in some ways, their identities, like brothers through Leverite marriage, become identified. And at the end of the book, you really see that because the end scene, it's sort of like you're not really sure 
who's nursing the child, who's caring for, there's a kind of collapsing of their identities. So I see them as be kind of, they are a sisterhood and non-biological relationship between two women that I think somehow becomes like a biological relationship in a way. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways. And that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy. And I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose and it's just my throat hurts and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Well, you know, you mentioned before about Israel and Judah having sort of a sister relationship. Can you just, what the heck are you talking about here? Yeah, so that's actually a great example of intentionality, right? So the, first of all, I want to say this is, we're now in the, as I said, in the realm of metaphor. And this metaphor you find in the prophets, in the prophetic books, and mostly in the prophets of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So those are the two prophets that really talk metaphorically about Israel and Judah as being God's wife, right? Wives. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel both present, you know, God is married first to Israel and then to Judah has these two wives. And Jeremiah is the first to present that they're not just two wives of God, but that they are in fact sisters and that Israel is the older sister and Judah is the younger sister. And Israel betrays God, behaves badly and needs to be punished and is destroyed. I mean, that's the Assyrians come and destroy Israel. And Judah 
the second wife, the younger sister, doesn't learn from her elder sister and imitates her. And same thing happens. So these are among the most disturbing passages in all of the Bible. They are very sexually explicit. These are very sexualized figures. Well, Amy, can I just jump uh, yeah. in here for, because I just, I, I just, I just got done teaching this stuff to my undergrads and one woman in the class asked us to stop reading. Yes. It was difficult for her. So yeah, it's just, I mean, what you're saying is I've experienced that very much. So yeah, I have but go that, ahead, please. Yeah. No, continue. no, no. I have that experience mm-hmm. a lot. And, you know, I struggle with that myself. I mean, to me, I've always been somebody who faces the darkness and engages with the darkness uh, and tries to understand it. But I have had that experience. And I, as I said, I think these are the most difficult passages that you can find. And many scholars, you know, folks now, readers, first of all, a lot of people don't even know they exist, which is interesting. And I feel in some ways, my job as a teacher and scholar is to make sure people know they exist. I mean, I think I don't want to ignore them. But there was a lot of attention uh, in the last 30 years at looking at these passages. I mean, you find them, so just to be specific, you find them in Jeremiah chapters two and three, and then some other passages as well in Jeremiah. And then you really find them in Ezekiel in, in chapters 16 and 23. And these are just horrific passages. And many, many scholars, feminist biblical scholars in particular, have read these as actually kind of pornographic chapters. And that itself is very disturbing. But back to this question of intentionality, to me, what's interesting is that whether it comes from individual prophets, you know, whether we could say there was a a figure, Jeremiah or Ezekiel, but there was intentionality in presenting Israel and Judah metaphorically as sisters, right? That did not have to happen. Mm -hmm. That's a choice. So I find that really kind of interesting. And to me, really does emphasize what I'm saying, that there really is something specific about the anxieties that sisters introduce, right? The destabilizing issue, the factor of sisters that I think these prophets are kind of capitalizing on. Is that why you would identify in in the metaphorical sense, they would be one of these dangerous sisters where they destabilize their houses, so to speak? Absolutely. I mean, the question then is, do they serve a purpose? That's what I I sort of feel like with someone like Lode's daughters, you can see the purpose, right? With actually, I'll just, you know, throw this in this with Saul's daughter as well, Michal and Merab, it's a pair of sisterhood. They are about weakening Saul's household for the good of David's household. That's their function. They do that. So the question really is, when you meet the sisters in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Are they introduced just to express anxieties or do they serve a purpose, right? And that's a really interesting question. I think my answer to that question would be they reflect anxieties and the prophets use those anxieties as a kind of rhetorical strategy to disturb their audience, Right. They know the power of these images to unsettle. And so they use these figures to do just that, to unsettle their audience. So there's a pattern of there's these deep narratival patterns where when we have sisters show up, there's a destabilizing force. And part of that sounds like socio-cultural, too, because 
they do represent a portal into families, right? Where they can bring a, a foreign person into the family through marriage. And that in itself can be destabilizing. Absolutely. I always like to say, and this is, you know, I mean, at some other time, I'm happy to talk more broadly about women, but I think, you know, in some ways, everything I'm saying about sisters, you can think, you know, I I think it helps us understand the role that women play. And, you know, one of the ways to sort of look at all female figures in the Bible sort of as threshold figures, right? The sort of windows and doors. And that's precisely right. They sort of stand on the thresholds of their family. And that's position of vulnerability. And in fact, one of the things that's sort of interesting, particularly if you go back, you know, what I like to do and what I think I do fairly well is, you know, I'm essentially a close reader. I'm an interpreter. That's what I like to do. I find, you know, I like the close reading. I think the Bible text, as I said, is so beautifully constructed, intentionally constructed. You know, I find constantly, even stories I know very well, I find new meaning. But, you know, it's interesting to think that the role that doors, windows, play in narratives that feature women. That's something that people should look for. And frankly, if you go back to the the story of Lot's daughters, that's a, a story about doorways and thresholds and the household and protecting the house and sort of going with it, you know, moving from inside to outside spaces. This is also true with the story that we didn't talk about, but Tamar, and this is not the Tamar that you meet in Genesis, but the Tamar that you meet in Samuel, who is David's daughter. She's a sister. Uh, In her story, you also have a lot of thresholds and sort of going inside and outside. So I think that sort of symbolizes the anxiety that, that sisters, but I would say even more broadly, women, daughters in general, introduce into the narrative. There is so much to chew on. And Unfortunately, we're about out of time, but my last question is, you know, you talked about being a close reader of the text and you're picking up on a lot of these things. And for our listeners who want to learn some of the practices of how to be a close reader of the text, what have you cultivated to help people see things that maybe they can gloss over? Or if you grow up in a church or a religious tradition, sometimes it's hard to read closely because you kind of feel like you already know what's there. So I would say, I mean... You know, I think this is actually the advantage that I have maybe and scholars in general have, which is, you know, my facility with Hebrew. And I would encourage people because I think some of the artistry, it's not that it doesn't translate. I think you can see it in translations as well, and especially good translations that pick up on, let's say, repeated phrases that sort of help you see the the Bible is an intertextual text. That is what makes it great. I always say to my students, the more Bible you know, the richer it becomes, right? And you really can see the way it echoes its own stories. And the more you read it, the more you can see it. But I actually think that if you have the facility of Hebrew, it's just that much easier because you really do see how it's just baked into the language, There is a great deal of repetition, you know, certain words that appear. There are certain ways in which stories are opened and closed intentionally and ways that stories are linked directly to other stories. I mean, there's just, you can see the richness in the language. The other thing that I would say, which becomes very evident to the more comfort you have in the original language is, you know, the Bible, unlike contemporary literature, is very sparse. 
I mean, here's just a rule of thumb that, you know, all of your listeners should know. I mean, the, the Bible sort of uses language very carefully. And when the Bible includes detail, you should pay attention. Right. When it has like specific detail, those are markers that you can say, this is just not typical. Right. So it includes that kind of information when it describes a character. Right. That's interesting. So, you know, I think you have to be sensitive to that, but I would just encourage people to read, just keep reading. And as close as your readers can get to the original text, I think it just grows that much richer. Yeah. As I often said, scrolls weren't cheap or easy. Yeah. So they didn't write things down willy-nilly. Yeah. Uh, yep. Pay attention. Well, thank you so much, Amy, for coming on and opening. Again, it seems so funny that it's like we're going to talk for 40 minutes about something that seems so narrow. And yet it's like we, we didn't even have time to scratch the surface of right. even just this one thing. So thanks again for talking about it and talking about it with such passion, because I, I think that's a little that's infectious. And I think that's really good for people to hear and feel. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. You've just made it through another episode of The Bible for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch the latest episode of our other show, Faith for Normal People, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by The Bible for Normal People podcast team. Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Stephanie Spate, Natalie Wyant, Stephen Henning, Tessa Stoltz, Haley Warren, Nick Striegel, and Jessica Shaw.